patient. Hello and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I am your host, Alex Case, and joining me today... David Stark, back again. And we are continuing with our October horror movie podcast with a film that is more horror-inspired than directly horror, with the film Rocky Horror Picture Show, our first musical to date. (laughs) And what a musical. I don't think you can find a more cult classic than this one. I think this film is practically the definition of a cult classic, and not just in the sense of, oh, it has an underground following, but in the sense of its fans have their rituals and shibboleths and initiations, like a kind of like a cult. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot to say about the Rocky Horror Picture Show and um, the live screenings that uh, pretty much happen weekly. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, at the Castro Theater. In addition to many other cities around the world, but yes, um, Portland uh, does have its weekly midnight showing. So, probably the first qu- so the first two questions I should ask then is not just the usual "When did you first see this movie?" but have you seen the movie? Have you been to the midnight screening experience? Uh, yes, yes, I have. In fact, that was where I first saw the movie because <laughs> I had friends and they were like. You have to come see this with us. It's fantastic. I'm like, what's it called? I was like, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I'm like, never heard of it. Because I, uh, I had an interesting childhood growing up. Uh, so I was taken to see it for the first time. And because, of course, live screening, everyone knows what's going on. So everyone's making tons of noise. I cannot follow this movie whatsoever. Even though there was an actual cast acting it out on stage in front of me. Uh, this was... Uh, 12 years ago, I think. I was 18 at the time. So that was interesting. So I have not been to a midnight screening of the movie. I have, however, my exposure to the film was kind of interesting in its own way. One of the things which happens a bunch in near middle school in the state of Oregon, don't know about other states in the U.S. Or, for the, or in Canada or anywhere else for that matter, is something called outdoor school, where like for about the last week or so, or like for a week from your um, sixth grade year, when you're in middle school, you go to basically summer, basically spring camp. Not so much summer camp, but spring camp. It's one week. It's at a campground somewhere, usually a place with cabins and that sort of thing. And for our camp experience, we had like morning meeting and that sort of stuff. And one of the things which one of the instructors did one morning to kind of get our attention, get everyone active and moving together and that sort of thing, was we did the time warp. It's just a jump to the left. And then a step to the right. You put your head, yeah. And they they had the audio track from the soundtrack of the movie, and we played it, and we did the time warp. And so I knew this was from something. It sounded like it was from a musical. I wasn't sure from what. I asked, and said, oh, it's from what's called the Haraki Horror Picture Show, and didn't give me much more information than that. And eventually ended up, when I had a DVD, access to a DVD player of my own when I was older, like in high school, I checked out the movie on DVD from the library. And that was the first time I actually got a chance to watch it. <laughs> and I, I still wonder how my how the teachers at door school got away with the Rocky blatant Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, it's it's certainly one of the more innocuous songs from the soundtrack, but still, yeah. Well, the time warp shows up in the weirdest places um, because it's from this incredibly well known film, but it's also probably the tamest song from there in terms of. Uh, content and that there's basically nothing sexual in an otherwise incredibly sexual 
sexually sexual image laden songs. And yeah, actually, it <laughs> when I got married, the DJ at my wedding played it and everyone that was about our age there was like, wait, I know this song and sprinted for the dance floor. <laughs> I remember this explicitly because when it came on, uh, I was talking to some old friends and I was like, wait, I know this song. So I ran for the dance floor and everything the time worked. Except my much older in-laws and my much older family members. Uh, so we should probably first talk a bit about what this movie was before it was a movie. And that was a musical. Uh, a British musical at a very small theater in London's East End, for I understand. Ah. Yeah. Were this in the US, this would have been like one of the off-Broadway musicals that Meatloaf was in when he first met Jim Steinman, that sort of thing. Which is appropriate comparison because Meat not only was Meatloaf in the movie, when the musical came to the United States, Meatloaf was cast into it as well. Did he play Eddie in the mus in the stage production? Yes. Um in particular, one thing's worth worth mentioning is because Eddie doesn't get much stage time, and for that matter, doesn't neither really does Dr. Scott. Eddie and Scott are played by the same... Dr. Scott are played by the same ca actor. It one it sort of makes sense because the two characters are family, so it lets you have that family resemblance. But still, um, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, there's a lot of that that goes on in um, stage productions where if two people aren't on stage at the same time, there's a good chance the same actor's playing them. Like, the priest and Frankenfurter are the same character. Yeah, though that's a little more deliberate in terms of uh, in fact, the character of the criminalist calls attention to it in the film. Though, from what I recall from the earlier productions, the criminalist is not a character in the in the uh, uh, stage production. Instead, the um, Transylvanians are serving as uh, Greek chorus, and they're present through much more of the film of the uh, play. So, the production hit it off in Britain, did fairly well. Came to the United States, did did much better, like significantly better. In the making of featurettes on the DVD and Blu-ray, they talk about how, like, Pete Moon, uh, Keith, Keith Moon, the drummer of The Who, would come to see it. And he'd have, like, front row seats. Elvis Presley came to see it on multiple occasions. Really? Yes. In fact, when this film entered production, Elvis Presley was still alive. And Elvis auditioned to play Eddie. I didn't know Elvis auditioned for anything. <laughs> This is kind of one of the situations where the movies that Elvis didn't audition for were films that were made as vehicles for Elvis. Situations where Elvis had a single, the record label in the studio said, "Oh, we're going to make a movie to promote the sing to promote the single or promote the album," and so we're going to make a movie with a whole bunch of Elvis of uh, the songs from the album on it and a loose and a loose plot stringing them together. But with this film, um, when they decided to turn this musical into a film, basically. The uh, studio, 20th Century Fox, kind of gave them two options. Alrighty, basically, one, if you want to make this movie with the Broadway cast, you can, but you're going to have a very low budget and not much shooting time. If you want to put some, put some big name actors in there, we'll give you a higher budget and more shooting time. Because we, because with these bigger name actors, we'll have people who come to see the movie because of the actors, and you might make that back. Some of the names which, which came up in relation to this, and I believe they even auditioned some of them, um, as possibly for the role before deciding to just go with the Broadway cast was like uh, Mick Jagger as Frankenfurter. I'm glad they went with Curry. I'm glad they went with Curry too. But in terms of the vocals, I can mm -hmm. see it. If you were, if you were to just if you were just going to 
put aside the idea of Mick Jagger in fishnet stockings. Well, I think he would have probably done a great job as Riff Raff. Uh, true. I think Richard O'Brien want, kind of wanted to, to keep Riff, his position as Riff Raff. Because yeah. he also is the writer. He, yeah. Both of the screenplay and the original musical. And to a certain degree, he kind of wrote those songs for him and what he knew he could do. Mick Jagger has the vocal range, and also I believe he's from the same part of London or whatever as that Tim Curry is, so his vocal stylings are similar. But in any case, but like at this time, it's important to mention, Tim Curry hadn't been in a movie before. He'd never done film work. This was his first feature, made feature film. And I don't think anyone's done as much as they could, as much as him in order to distance themselves from this film. Oh, Tim Curry will still occasionally do films, still do talk about the film in relation to up to other stuff, but it is a certain degree of his career is massive enough that, and he's just done so much stuff that I suspect to a certain degree, Tim Curry is like, I, I prefer to talk more about what I'm working on right now. I mean, Susan Sarandon's also kind of not as involved in talking about Rocky Horror stuff. Like she'll show, show up for a reunion thing or whatever, or do a reunion art, um, interview article every now and then for a big anniversary. But by comparison, you have Rich O'Brien and Patricia Crin and even Barry Bostwick who are like, yeah, we love this movie. You had, um, like when Glee did their Rocky Horror Picture Show episode, Barry Bostwick and Meatloaf were in the episode. <sighs> Speaking of the cultural impact of this movie, they did a dedicated episode of Glee just to Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they sort of really failed. Wasn't saying it was a good episode of television, just saying they did it. And Glee is pretty mainstream when it comes to TV. Fair point, fair point. So when it comes to the, uh, so I was get to talk about the movie itself and its the plot and what happens to it. So the movie starts out with probably the most iconic opening in the history of film, which is the song Science Fiction Double Feature, uh, which is sung simply by a pair of very red feminine lips on a black background. Yep. Pretty iconic. Not the most iconic from films, but definitely up there. Yeah, I mean, like... It, it's right up there with the Star Destroyer from Star Wars. Really? Like, when, like, in the promotional trailers and stuff for this on the DVD and Blu-ray, they focused a lot on the lips. Like, the point where, like, the voiceover from one of the trailers is, it's the lips talking, not in the giving the, the, the pitch and stuff for the movie and the spiel. So... They kind of embraced this, and it was the right thing to do. Um, originally, from from the uh, audio commentary, the plan was, actually, that the opening was going to be in black and white. And when these various fil- science fiction films are referenced in the course of the song, um, they have clips from them. So, you for the, um, the Flash Gordon was there in, in silver underwear, they have a clip from one of the Flash Gordon serials, for example. Um, that sort of thing. And... It's a great song. It's like one... I have several of the um, songs from the soundtrack on my iPod. This is one of the ones I'm missing, and it's the one I think is most... I I, I want to get back on my iPod. Get on my iPod, because I think it's significant in terms of the soundtrack. It's a great song, um, and it's not just one of those, it's a great song, it's a great song from a musical. It's just a really good song Mm -hmm. from a musical. (laughs) Yeah. Also of note is the lips belong to Patricia Quinn. The singing voice belongs to Richard O'Brien. <laughs> yes. So Riff Raff and Magento once again. Yep. 
after the opening credits, we then kind of move into the, the opening of the plot, the actual plot, which is um, the uh, this young couple of Brad Majors and Janet Weiss, who are two just good old down-home Middle America kids, as envisioned by British people who have never been to Middle America ever, as they said themselves in the audio commentary. Uh, when they wrote the musical, they'd never been to Middle America. In fact, even when they did the movie, they still hadn't been to Middle America, so they just made a guess. And they straight up do the American Gothic with um, Patricia Quinn and Richard O'Brien. <laughs> and I think that's probably as close as they ever came, looking at the classic American Gothic picture. Yeah, that and um, Whistler's Mother, which they also stick a reference to in the book of the criminal of the uh, criminalist who will get who will show up in a bit basically brad and janet's best friend have gotten married janet caught the bouquet brad proposes and they decide to drive off to meet the person who in whose science class they met dr everett scott of course this we get our second song damn it janet which is set through them having a big conversation outside moving into the church which is quickly getting turned around from the wedding to being reconfigured for a funeral just some great background humor going on there. Yep. So then drive off with, and at which point we're introduced to the criminalist, who is our newly introduced Greek chorus. Probably mentioned before this got meant, really forgot to mention. Janet is played by Susan Sarandon, who had done acting roles before this, but I would say she, like, she's not the big name she is now, to a certain degree. And, and also we have, um, Barry Bostwick playing Brad Majors. Barry Bostwick, I still don't think is a big name. No, I think I think the biggest thing I've seen him in was uh, aside from this, obviously, uh, the mayor in oh, it's sitcom about mayor of New York. Well, his office, Spin City. Thank you, Spin City. Yes, yeah. Like Susan Sarandon has been in films that have won Oscars, and I believe has won Oscars herself. I believe you are correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, free, received her first nomination in 80. And when did she make her first win? Uh, oh, 95 for Dead Man Walking. Oh, that fits. Yeah. Interesting enough, Tim Curry actually, uh, as far as awards and him goes, he is, his first award he ever nominated for actually was for Rocky Horror. He was nominated for the Drama Desk Award, which is a off-broad, which is a, um, off-Broadway, uh, a Broadway and off-Broadway, uh, theater award group uh, he was nominated didn't win but yeah he's he's also gone to do he hasn't won like an oscar or anything like that but he's gotten emmys and he's gotten um nominated for grammys and tonys and that sort of thing yeah tim curry is one of those great actors because you can really tell uh someone's sort of how old they are based on what movie they remember him from first like I think the first one I remember seeing him in was uh, when he played Cardinal Richelieu in Disney's The Three Musketeers. Speaking of other recognizable actors... Oh, just that movie. ...is we have... Uh, the Criminalist is played by Charles Gray, who, at this point, is probably best known for... Well, Blofeld in uh, you only in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, he'd also been briefly playing the character of Henderson in... The earlier Bond film, You Only Live Twice. But yeah, he's, it's, we have a, a Blofeld, we have a Bond movie actor here. Uh, the other kind of our major actors, uh, criminalist, who's basically plays everything in the, in this movie deadly straight with the exception of one scene, which we will get to fairly soon. 
So Brad and Janet go driving off to find Dr. Scott and tell them the good news. And a stormy night happens. They get a flat and they find a near nearby mansion, at which point they cheer their good praises by sing with, with the song. There's a let's see here. Find the correct title of this. Over at the Frankenstein Place is the name of the title of the song. But I'd probably describe it as over at the Frankenstein's place, parentheses, there is a light. Because that's kind of the refrain that Pratt and Janet sing before background characters interject with the over at the Frankenstein place part. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of, in the audio commentary, this is the part where the movie, when you, when, uh, Pat, when Richard O'Brien was seeing the film in theaters with an audience for the first time, where some of his worries were started to be eased. Because this film is a comedy. And his, this is kind of the first, I mean, Damn it, Janet, Damn it, Janet is a jokey song. But this is a more kind of subtle joke with the, the fact that the light is over at the Frankenstein place and we all know to associate Frankenstein with things not being, things not going well. You know, the kind of place that you expect to, you know, see an mo- angry mob with torches and pitchforks heading for. <laughs> exactly. So they make, they wear there, make their way there in a scene which apparently during the shooting, Susan Sarandon got pneumonia, partially because she's running around outside in the autumn in Britain while rain machines are going. Yeah, I'm really not surprised, because she is she's a very tiny woman. That sort of weather would do that to the, well, the guy who played Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the mansion itself is named Oakley Court, and it's worth mentioning because this film was shot at there and near at Prey Studios, which is the prior home of Hammer Films. And you may have seen Oaksley Court in a whole bunch of earlier Hammer horror movies. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, classic Hammer. Yep. And we'll get to see another Hammer reference here in terms of a prop later. But first, we might have to go inside where we meet Riff Raff and Magenta. Riff Raff being the butler slash handyman, and Magenta being the maid and cook. And we get to the most iconic song from this film. The Time Warp. <laughs> yep. And this, this is the point where the, um, where the criminal, criminologist just gets silly. Everyone gets silly. And really everyone just kind of gets up by their chairs and dances in the theater, pretty much. Like you do. Like you do. In fact, we are this year on the 50th anniversary of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The film came out in 1975. 40th anniversary? No, 50th. Do your math. 30 puts us at 2000... Oh, sorry. Yeah, 40th anniversary. Yeah. Because yeah, 30 puts us at 2005. It's 2015. So, so 40th anniversary. Uh, we've actually kind of passed it. The um, movie's initial release in Britain was in August, and the initial US release was September, but whatever. And the point is, I would hope, if there's any justice in this world, that the next Academy Awards, in tribute to the anniversary of Rocky Horror Picture Show, they open up with a musical montage, or musical selection of tracks from the of from this song from the film and we have the audience in attendance encouraged to get up and do the time warp that would be fantastic but i probably suspect they'll wait for the 50th for that if for no other reason then the academy awards are very very conservative and every time they get a host that isn't that host is never coming back one reason that Billy Crystal was around so long, he was a safe bet. You know, he's humorous, but he's not uh, mean humor. You know, there's no picking on anyone. He doesn't do anything political. 
as opposed to when Jon Stewart hosted it or Seth MacFarlane hosted it for completely different reasons. You know, one was very political, one was very mean. Yeah. So we go straight from the time warp into the dramatic introduction of Tim Curry as Dr. Frank and Furter with the song Sweet Transvestite. Yes. And what's worth noting about his entrance is that when we first see him, he's wearing the very pale makeup. He's got the very dark lips. He's wearing, we don't know what he's wearing underneath his high, extremely high collared vampire-esque cape. And it's, and the song starts off very, you know, very deliberate. And then he throws off the cape and it's a corset and garters. Yep. Um, we get a hint of what's coming because when we first see Frankenfurter, we see his heeled, his high heeled foot tapping to the beat of the music, which hasn't quite started yet as sort of his own introductory chorus. And it's great we're mentioning because this scene kind of gets into how one of the things this scene mentioned about this film is it's kind of had a certain degree of influence from what I've heard on punk fashion and comes up a bit here with the kind of torn stock, like the, the deli- kind of deliberately torn fishnet stockings and that sort of thing. We get a bit of this later with the super pin festooned leather jacket that, that Frankenfurter wears among a few other things. And yeah, this is, this is an amazing song. Tim Curry really owns this song. It, it really shows his real vocal power. And while other singers have done it, um, when there was a revival of it, Anthony Stewart Head played Frankenfurter. Huh. And, I have no, and I have no doubt that he could do it, but Tim Curry is kind of the definitive vocalist for this song. Well, he did it first, and uh, he arguably did it best. Yep. So... And this is where the joke, which I started last episode and did this episode comes up, uh, which is the, so you shiver with anticipation. Should we probably talk a bit here about, since this is, this is where a lot of the callbacks come, come up, about the callbacks in, um, regards to the screen in the Rocky Horror, uh, well, the, the screenings? Oh my god. <laughs> yes, the call and returns from live screenings. There are so many. Like, every time someone says Janet, you yell, slut. Every time you someone says Brad, you yell, god, asshole? Something like that. Asshole. It's, uh, there is an entire script that goes with going to a live showing that <laughs> you will feel incredibly lost if you do not know ahead of time. And it's interesting. I've seen it attempted with several other films, um... Probably most notably was with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, but which not that great, to be honest. Uh, the call and re- the callbacks, not the film itself. I love that film. Um, but there's an entire culture here. And it's very interesting in that it's it's very interesting <laughs> and a lot of fun when you get when you know what's going on. Yeah, um, perhaps one, one of the things I like the most about the uh, Blu-ray and DVD releases is they have kind of the script in there, and in some versions also a picture-in-picture of the Shadorama on stage productions. So it, it, if you're thinking I'm going to a midnight screening, and you want to know what's going on, and you don't want to be too lost, it's a good way to know what the jokes are and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's definitely a unique part of the film culture of, of this film's culture. I've heard that there were attempts to kind of put something like this together for the sequel, Shock Treatment, which we'll talk about that in a, brief, a bit in brief once we finish getting through the film synopsis. And right now we're still kind of in the highest density bit of songs in the movie. Cause we're like, we go from 
time warp straight into sweet transvestite straight in from there when we go up to the lab to uh, uh, i can make you a man by tim uh, curry sort of damocles, then i can make you a man Sorry, what uh, the sword of damocles then i can make you a man. oh you're right uh sword of damocles well i get to our other hammer reference the tank that rocky is suspended in is from one of the hammer frankenstein movies in particular the film i want to say revenge of frankenstein yeah uh, the tank and the dummy itself. Uh, it also kind of, the method also kind of works as well because the Hammer Frankenstein movies didn't use electricity for creation of the monster like with the American Frankenstein movies. Instead, it was used it was use of chemicals. Well, it's the you know changing of the eras. You know, electricity is no longer the end all be all. Now we've got sweet sweet chemicals. Indeed, and also in particular with the uh, Hammer films. Um, because they were shot in color, as opposed to the old Universal ones being shot in black and white. The Hammer, uh, the Hammer films, because the chemicals could do all sorts of neat color stuff in the tank as well. And we kind of get that here with sort of film forming a color spectrum inside the tank with all the chemicals that uh, that Frankenfurter is adding. Uh, supposedly, you get this scene also has sort of the first tease of the tension between Riff Raff and. Uh, Frankenfurter will pay off, which will pay off later, with the implication being that um, Riff Raff is the one who actually did all the work on building Rocky, um, while uh, Frank Frankenfurter took all the credit. But I don't quite see it. Well, I think the first really part is when um, you know they when Frankenfurter reveals Rocky, you know, takes the bandages off his head, and Rocky's holding on to that chemical administering device above him and Riff Raff just spins the controls wildly lifting Rocky straight up into the air leading into the sort of Damocles yep and you know Frankenfurter comes over and admonishes him yeah physically admonishes him because obviously Rocky is singing at this point so can't have him verbally do it mm-hmm. so we go to so we get through sort of Damocles which is Expression of existential angst by Rocky upon his birth, leading into I Can Make You a Man by, sung by Tim Curry, basically saying, hey, I, I made myself a hunk. A hunk a hunk of burning love. Yep. However, this is then, in, this is then interrupted by the appearance of Meatloaf as Eddie with on the song. Motorcycle. Yes. On a motorcycle, bursting out of a freezer with the song Hot Patootie Bust My Soul, which were it not for the fat establishment later in the film and the play that Eddie is the nephew of Dr. Scott and that Eddie has some sort of said some suspicions that Frankenfurter is an, is an alien. This scene would be, would be one of those things that just comes out of nowhere and seemingly goes, um, goes nowhere aside from establishing Frankenfurter's vicious streak. Yeah, this was, if it wasn't for the Dr. Scott connection, this would be, um, uh... The big-lipped alligator moment. Yes. And after the uh, scene from uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, which has a big-lipped singing alligator, shows up for one song, disappears, and is never referred to again. Yeah. We... So after, um, well, Eddie is murdered off-camera by Frankenfurter with a um, sort of ice axe, I guess? Yeah. It, pickaxe, something. Which, yeah, everyone reacts to it. I mean, it, it's, it's off, it's what I describe it as off camera, but audible, which makes sense because, because with, 
This film was kind of pushing and like trying. Oh, I don't, I'm not sure if you could get away with having it on camera or not, uh, and still keep your R read R rating. Back then, given everything else this thing did, probably not. Yeah, we then actually get some dialogue stuff from here. Um, we have Frankenfurter retiring to an evening for an evening with Rocky. <laughs> it starts off as an evening with Rocky. It becomes an evening with Janet, and then an evening with Brad, and. Then an evening between Janet and Rocky, and I think pretty much everyone was getting it on at some point this night. Pretty much. It's worth noting the dialogue scenes that uh, basically Tim uh, Frankenfurter seduces Brad and uh, Janet pretty much in the same way. Actually, even pretty much. They come into their room, dressed up into the into each character's room, dressed up as the other half of the couple. Starts to make out. Is his thin disguise is revealed. And then at which point his dialogue is the same between both scenes. What have you done with, what have you done with Brad? Nothing. Should I? What have you done with Janet? Nothing. Should I? I can be blind as, nothing. Why? Do you think I should? <laughs> which is odd, because he says it to Brad, even though he's just slept with Janet. Yeah. Well, Brad doesn't know he slept with Janet. True. So, we then have um, Janet wandering off, wondering what's happened to Brad, discovering that Brad has slept with Frankenfurter um, on the hidden camera, on the, on the uh, rather on the screen for the hidden camera, in cameras that are throughout the building in Rocky's chamber. At which point she sleeps with Rocky. The new kind of previous setup that that um, I just kind of skipped over a bit, where Magenta and Riff Raff release Rocky from where he's chained to Frankenfurter's bed, which is yeah, and then drives him off with fire because. Frankenstein reference, and Rocky is now frightened and beat up and that sort of thing, so... And they release the hounds on him! <laughs> yeah. Uh, <sighs> glorious callback. Yeah. During this bit, there's actually a song that was that was in the um, musical, but was cut from the film, that they did shoot that was in here, called What's in, called Once in a While. It's actually has, available on a deleted scene on the uh, Blu-ray, which is basically Brad musing over his infidelity and angsting over the whole thing. And supposedly what was supposed to happen was that the scenes with Janet were supposed to be intercut with this, which is why the Janet scenes is kind of a disjointed feel. Yeah. And this leads to Janet's song with Rocky. Touch-a, 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 touch me. Mm-hmm. She wants to be dirty. Yep. Thrill me, fill me. No, thrill me, chill me, fulfill me. Creature of the night. Yep. And eventually they are discovered, and additionally, Doc... And before Frankenfurter can confront them, Dr. Scott shows up, and he gets brought in to our sort of, oh uh, yeah, to do, do one of the best editing jokes in the movie with the, let's remember the order right, uh, Janet, Dr. Scott, Janet, Brad, Rocky, mm. Rocky doesn't actually grunt, but this is up radio, so I gotta work with something. Yeah, he just gives longingful looks. Me- yeah, meaningful, long, concerned looks. Quickly intercut with everyone saying everyone else's name. Pretty much. Um, so, and then we learn that dinner is served, so we have a very comfortable, awkward meal between all the characters where we learn Dr. Scott is a Nazi, or at least implied to be a Nazi, Eddie was a juvenile delinquent, and also is dinner. Well, it is meatloaf. <laughs> ah, this is true. I'm sorry I couldn't help myself. To be fair... This is one of the callbacks, call and responses in the, uh, if you're seeing this live. So, yeah. So, 
after so Frank basically captures everyone with the Medusa transducer, which turns them all into very anatomically correct nude statues. I wonder if there's a story there. I mean, are these actually like casts of the actors or are they just statues that they then cast the actor faces on? There was some casting done of the actors. I don't know if it was a full body thing. They did not get into that in the uh, DVD features. And this leads into kind of the last music, the last big sequence of musical numbers of the film. It's what's known as the four show, which is Roast Hit My War World, Fanfare, and then Wild and Untamed Thing, um, which is done in a building of the hot mansion that we haven't seen before, the theater, on a big set featuring the RKO Pictures uh, movie tower from the opening of those movies. And ultimately, all of this is interrupted by the arrival of Riff Raff and Magenta in 1930s to 1930s serial combat, alien combat gear. Yeah, they're a uh, full Transylvanian regalia. Yep. Complete with um, Magenta wearing the Bride of Frankenstein wig. Yes. And Riff Raff um, wielding a laser pitchfork. An antimatter laser pitchfork. Yes, yes, an antimatter laser pitchfork. Which is impressive, part, well, impressive and not very impressive because they shoot Rocky several times and he seems to shrug it off fairly well and before finally succumbing. Well, you know, Rocky's an engineered creature. I mean, it only took like one shot for Frankenfurter. That's true. Though it did not have the appropriate matter-antimatter reaction. But yeah. I think that's a good thing for the planet's sake. <laughs> Indeed. So, basically, Magenta and Riff are like, yeah, we're done with you, we're going home, we're killing you and your creation. Now, this is actually where one of the kind of the narrative pacing or tonal bits from the uh, Broadway, from the stage to screen transition comes in. In the stage version, Magenta, the Magenta, um, the character of... Columbia? Yeah, Columbia takes the uh, laser for, takes a laser for uh, Frankenfurter, but... In this version, she's not even close to him. She just gets zapped. Which is really unfortunate, because if following along, her she's got a pretty tragic story. She was sort of a favorite, uh, for lack of a better term, plaything of uh, Frankenfurters, until he got tired of her and switched over to Eddie. And then he got tired of Eddie, and he, or Riff Raff, depending, uh, made Rocky. And then Riff Raff got tired of them all. Yeah. There's definitely the, the, the implication that, aside from the fact that Frank Furter is an alien and has a does not have a morality particularly like any human, um, he tends to treat people like toys, putting them aside when he's done with them. And there's a song here, um, it's like Frank Furter's last song, uh, I'm Going Home, which is kind of gets us in, into his personal perception a little bit, where he's he tries to paint himself as a kind of tragic figure, but I, I don't really buy it. No. No, he's very much the uh, spoiled kid who always gets his way. And then he throws a tantrum every time he doesn't. People stop paying attention to him and pay attention to Eddie, so he kills Eddie. Uh, Brad and Janet and Rocky and Columbia stop doing things his way, so he turns them all to stone. And then kind of forces them to stage a, a musical production for an audience of no one. Yeah, and there's that 
weird underwater implied orgy thing going on. Yeah. I kind of feel more for uh, Riff Raff. He, he kind of has this great little exchange with him and the Magenta after Rocky and and Frankfurter are dead, where Magenta goes, huh, you killed them. I, I thought I thought you liked them. They, they liked you. And Potts is, they didn't like, is a very upset, they didn't like me. Uh, response, which I, which I believe, remember right, Richard O'Brien does kind of try to bring out a tear as well after he says that, after he has his outburst. And you kind of get the implication that he's the guy who's been beaten and, um, used and abused for just too long, and he's finally hit his point where I'm done. I'm just, just done, done, done. I've had enough of all of you and of all of, and all your crap. Yeah. There's that great, you know, he didn't like me. He never liked me. Yeah. Which implies that he just wanted Frankenfurter's attention. Positive attention. Well, probably not, sexual attention. Not, not that kind of attention. Just, just like, you know, I, I suspect that Frank, that, that Riff Raff may have had a better understanding of what the, for lack of a better term, relationship between Butler and Master was supposed to be, and wasn't getting that, and preferred something closer to that. Yeah, I think he wanted a very different kind of uh, servant and master relationship. Yeah. And in any case, Riff Raff and Magenta basically tell the rest of the humans, yeah, get out of here, go, and they leave. And we get one last little song, which was not in the U.S. version, was in the European version, and also on the U.S. soundtrack release. So, probably a certain degree of sense of, um, uh, if you were listening to the, uh, sound, to the soundtrack release, um, wondering, wait, where does this song fit into the movie? This is the song Superheroes, I'm specifically referring to. We do get, like, the last bit of it in the U.S. release with the, um, Ending line from uh, the uh, criminal criminologist of um, and crawlings on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time and lost in space and meaning. Which, in the context of the larger song, well, it fits in more and I think works better. Whereas in the U.S. theatrical cut, to a certain degree, it kind of feels like, oh, we need to stick something profound in here real quick. Yeah, sort of like, uh, well, we need a good coda, I guess. What footage do we have that'll work? Yeah. And then from there, we go into the a, a sort of recap reprisal of science fiction double feature to wrap up the movie. And whereas the first one, the original, the, the opening focuses more just generally on science fiction films as a whole, this one is more focused on this film's uh, plot. So, um, this film, on original theatrical release, was kind of eh. From the marketing materials, they kind of... I think they kind of knew what kind of audience they were trying to go for, maybe, but they didn't necessarily know how to reach them. I'm not entirely certain what the target audience for this film is. I think at the time when this came out, people who like really weird stuff and also might be willing to go see movies possibly impaired uh, under, considering this is 1975, mind-altering substances. Mmm, stoner flick. Kind of. But a, to the way a more highbrow stoner flick than, say, a Cheech and Chong movie, for example, or that fantasy stoner, Your Highness, the fantasy stoner flick with Natalie Portman and what's-his-face? Oh, yeah, um, Green Goblin. Yeah, James Franco. Thank you. Uh, however, basically, this film managed to reach its cult audience, reach that kind of audience through midnight screenings at colleges and universities. Where you'd have they be playing uh, the freaks and Reefer Madness and this? Yeah, 
This is just incredibly... It's got one of the most... Actually, I think it does have the longest consecutive run uh, at... I wanna, yeah, it's the Castro Theater in Portland on Clinton Street, where it has been running uh, consecutively every Friday night at midnight uh, since, I believe, 1981, which would be impressive for any film. Yeah. Looking at the box office information from uh, IMDb, um, this film's budget, estimated budget, is about $1.2 million. Between rentals, its gross thus far is at about, I don't know if this is the total gross over time or what, probably total gross over time, $139.8 million, which is really good. And then another... million dollars in rentals. So this is a film where it definitely one of those cases where it failed to find its audience on its original theatrical release and then just made mad bank in second run and third run theaters and call and screenings at college campuses and especially when home video became a thing. Yeah. Oh, um, I just looked it up. I was wrong. I was confusing it at one of the theaters I had seen it in. San Francisco, the Castro Theater. And the Clinton, the one in Portland is the Clinton Street Theater. Yes. It's it just called the Clinton Street. Yeah. Uh, where it has been running since 1978. So, so like three years after this came out. Yeah. Okay, doing a little quick math. Assuming that the gross does not include rentals, that is about $189.7 million total money it's brought in divided by the estimated budget, and it's basically made about 158 times its budget back. So, by any reasonable standard, this film is profitable. And to a certain degree, this is also why we got later, um, specifically in 1981, the film Shock Treatment made. Same director, Jim uh, Sharman, and once again written by Richard O'Brien. However, whereas Rocky Horror Picture Show began its life as a... As a stage musical this was born as a theatrical release and it didn't quite find the same following and to a certain degree part of the film's problem as well <laughs> is they couldn't get as many of the actors back uh they got charles gray back richard uh, richard o'brien and patricia quinn are back little nell who played columbia in, in rocky horror is back no tim curry and perhaps the bigger thing they ha- they, reca- they recast Janet and Brad, which I feel is a mistake. If you're going, if you can't get um, Susan Sarandon and Barry Bostwick, but you still have everyone else, make it an adventure about two new people who get thrown into the weirdness that is the Transylvanians. Well, with what they were trying to do with shock treatment, a certain degree is the other actors weren't reprising their role. Uh, as far as Richard O'Brien wasn't playing. Um, Riff Raff. Riff Raff, he's playing, um, Patricia Quinn wasn't playing Magenta, they're playing basically kind of crazy psychiatrists. And the, what the film ran into was originally it was supposed to be shot on soundstage, shot on location, but due to strikes, it was a Teamster strike, they ended up shoot, having to shoot on sound stages. Um, and so they turned it into a satire of TV culture. Yeah. Which, to a certain degree, creates a problem where if you're trying to do the same midnight screening thing again, trying to get the same sort of cult following behind it, it helps if your cast is small. And effectively, for Rocky Horror Picture Show, your cast is eight people, effectively. Especially if you're having Dr. Scott and Eddie be the same person. If you're having the... Maybe you have a ninth for the criminologist, 
Because as far as the Transylvanians go, they're just they're just extras, extras and background dancers. So there's that. So that film kind of tanked. Richard O'Brien has off and on and tried to retool it into some sort of Broadway, not Broadway, but a, a, a stage musical fashion, but he's never quite pulled it off. I'd like to see it happen to see how it turns out, but you never know. Hilariously, there's a several-month-long arc about adapting shock treatment to the stage uh, many years ago in the webcomic Something Positive. I remember reading that arc. I want to say that, like, the arc came around kind, about kind of around the time, one of the times that a little after Richard O'Brien had kind of stopped one of his attempts to adapt it or put the production on, but I don't know. Well... It's, well, with the uh, author in theater and the number of times Richard O'Brien has attempted adaptations, that's easily possible. Yeah. So as far as it fared in our tournament, perhaps shockingly, the film failed to place. It got a fair number of votes. We had uh, 40 people voting for it. Really? However, it kind of was a mix of above average and below average with, like, other of the people voting it. We had, like, over half the people who voted had seen it, but it was kind of a mix of... Either, well, uh, like a few more people either thought it was average or below average than had, than those that seen it. We had 14 people who thought it was average and 7 people who thought it was below average and 19 who thought it was above average. Well, it's really one of those films where it's less about watching the film itself than the experience of watching it with others. This is true. And even if you're not going to see it and getting the full midnight screening experience, it's still something where... It's a shared experience, and it's all, it also makes it very much also a you, lo- you love it or you hate it kind of thing. Yeah. But I think it is a good film. It's definitely something where I'd say, if you haven't seen the film before, it's worth seeing it. Absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's in the book of a hundred science fiction films you need to see before you die, or a thousand science fiction films you need to see before you die, or anything like that, or movies in general you need to see before you die, but I'd probably put it in there. Oh, I'd definitely put it in there. It's, I mean... It's absolutely worth watching. Um, if you don't, if you don't feel that you know you're ready to go up and see it in a theater with a dozens of other people, then at least grab a couple of friends to watch it on the couch with. Yeah. So, any other final thoughts on the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Watch it. <laughs> yep. Now we have a couple other musical or semi-musical films in the tournament, which we're getting to at later times. There's the Brian De Palma Phantom of the Paradise. Which is probably the kind of thing to be saved for to will fit it with fit in nicely again around October next year or so maybe and we have the Daft Punk Legi Masumoto joint Interstellar five thousand three hundred and uh, five thousand five hundred and fifty five secret of the no saga of the secret star system e- yeah the s's on each of which are replaced with fives yeah which we we'll also get to a little later. In the meantime, though, next week we is Halloween itself, so we're going to go with a horror film that is known for being, for its creepiness and, legi- for its legitimate creepiness with Event Horizon. So you can look forward to that. Until next time, I am Alex Case. I'm David Stark. And thank you for listening.